Well, Happy New Year all. It's great to have you here. Initially, the last couple of weeks, we had an opportunity to do some traveling over the Christmas break there. And it's great to be back in fellowship with our family here at Bible Parish. This coming Friday will be Epiphany Day, the day when the wise men, we celebrate the wise men arriving uh, at the, at the uh, stable. Actually, they don't arrive at the stable, they arrive at the house. Uh, and I thought as I was preparing for this morning that it might be appropriate to look a little bit more at the wise men, at their story, at what we know and what we don't know. Uh, and so this morning I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read the first 10 verses. That's on page 757 of your pew Bible. And I think it's going to be broadcast up behind me here. We'll see if it shows up or not, but I'm going to read it anyway. So Matthew chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God. Let me pray as we begin our time together. God, we are faithful and we are true to you because your word is faithful and true. As we contemplate the story of the wise men this morning, we're struck by the fact that these men, of whom we know so little, would travel so far based on what they had seen in a star. Help us to understand more of what motivated those men. And help us to see how their motivation and the circumstances that surrounded it speak to our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think this is one of the most enigmatic stories of the New Testament. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew reports that sometime shortly after the birth of Jesus, Magi from the east come to Jerusalem and declare that they have seen a star indicating the birth of a king of the Jews. Its enigmatic nature stems from its brevity. Matthew apparently thought the Magi need no introduction to the people. So his readers at the time must already have known who they were. But I began to ask myself, who are these guys? And what's their story? 
The story of the Magi actually begins with the life of a prophet named Zoroaster. So unfortunately, we don't know very much about Zoroaster's life. We don't know what century he was born in, and most of his writings have been lost. What we do know is that he lived in what is now Central Asia or Eastern Iran, and that his teachings formed the core of a new monotheistic religion at the time, which we now know as Zoroastrianism, to which there are about 100 or 200,000 people who actually are adherents to Zoroasterism in the world today. They're mostly found in, in Iran and in, in that area of Central Asia. The Magi first appear in the biblical record in the 7th century BC, not in Persia, but in the kingdom of the Medes. They are described as a priestly class, but their main task appears to have been in the interpretation of the king's dreams. In this case, they're very similar to the wise men that are present in almost every ancient culture at the time. I mean, if you think back to Joseph in the Old Testament, he's interpreting dreams, and there's always people that are dream interpreters in the presence of the king. And these, these guys, apparently, in the original form, are among those groups. Now, dream interpretation is going to end up being the fall, the downfall of the king of, of the Median Empire. According to Herodotus, who is a semi-historian uh, of the account, sometimes he melds a little legend into his accounts, he maintains that the Median king, Astyages, had a series of dreams which the Magi interpreted as meaning that his grandson, who was the son of a daughter of his who married a Persian man, was going to eventually rule all of Asia. And this guy, Astyages, being a typical paranoid uh, king at the time, ordered the death of this child, of this grandson of his. However, the man who was assigned to kill the child refused to carry out the deed and instead smuggles the little boy away where he's raised in the country by a cowherd and his wife. Some years later, the boy is summoned to appear, to appear before Astyagus, who recognizes his facial features. And again, Astyagus consults the Magi, who tell him that there's now nothing to fear because, quote, some of our prophecies come to very little significance. And this little boy is actually playing king among his friends, so really that fulfilled the prophecy. You have nothing to fear. And by the way, remember, we depend on your good favor to maintain our status in your kingdom. And so Astyagus takes them at their word, and the little boy survives. A little while later, this little boy turns out to take another name. And the name he takes is Cyrus. Cyrus is the man who leads the revolt of the Persians against the Medes. And after Astyagus suffers his first defeat at the hands of Cyrus, he brings in the Magi who had given him what now appears to have been very bad advice. And he has them impaled on a pole and hung up in the center of Ecbatana, the capital city, for all to see how you do not want to make a bad error in judgment before the king. This, however, is not the end of Astyagus' problems because uh, within 11 years, Cyrus completely conquers him and his empire is no more. This, end of, this ends media's independence and inaugurates the era of the Persian Empire that we read about in scripture. Cyrus eventually goes on to capture Babylon, and he rules what is at that time the largest kingdom known to man. It stretches from Judea in the south, all the way up to Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, in the north, 
and as far east as what we would call Pakistan or Iran, what is known then as the Hindu Kush. So he realized this massive empire from this child who was apparently supposed to have been killed early on. The cast of the Magi in scripture then traces to Babylon during and after the exile. In Babylon, Daniel chapter 2 tells us that the wise men are, is what they're called, and to these wise men, they have been assimilated into this larger group of Magi, but several Jewish men have reached ascendant points within the Magi tradition. They, of course, we call them Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm sure you all remember those stories from the early chapters of the book of Daniel. It's clear that these men, the Jewish boys, have, a, have managed to go through the ranks because of their wisdom, because of God's provision for them, and they are now advisors to the early kings of that empire. The Magi then have become a mixture of various religions and disciplines who are always available to counsel kings in whatever affairs they may have on their, on their docket. When the Persian Empire conquers the Medes in the fifth chapter of Daniel, as well as in secular history, this brings the Magi, they bring the Magi cast with them, and they then allow these Jewish Magi, or these Jewish wise men, to become part of their group. And so they're larger, this part, part of this larger group who, are, who seem to be in this ascendant position within the kingdom of the Persians as well. Daniel, as you'll recall from the book of Daniel, is appointed the head of 120 satraps under the rule of Darius. And so his position has become elevated even within the Magi themselves. And there is a long-standing understanding, or there's a long-held understanding and tradition within the, within the teaching of the Magi, that Daniel begins a school of the Magi, which is known as the Eastern School of the Magi, which persists until the time of Christ. There's a comment by the Jewish philosopher Philo, who lives at the time of Christ, speaking about the school of the Magi, and he says this, there's a school of the Magi in Babylon known as the Eastern School that is filled with men of learning and great character who are filled with the wisdom from the true God. So it seems very likely that many of these Eastern School Magi were Jewish, and many of these Jewish men did not return from the exile, and they remained in Babylon after the captivity was over. And we know from scripture that the greatest of all the Magi that were recognized at the time was Daniel. Because after the lion's den episode, he gets promoted to the head of all of the, all the responsible leaders and administrators of the kingdom. Daniel, even before being eleva elevated by Darius, had been previously elevated by Nebuchadnezzar, who acknowledged, him as, who acknowledged his God as the only true God. So the book spans a lot of years and a lot of kingdoms, and Daniel always has this place of authority within them. As a man who follows the living and true God, but who's able to meld in and fit in very nicely with these wise men from various other cultures. He is placed in a position of prominence. He's given under, under uh, Darius. He, he and his three friends become very important. And the best evidence is that they do not return from the exile back to Jerusalem, probably because of old age. They've been there for the entire captivity of 70 years, and so they're probably in their late 80s or 90s. And probably, to be honest, their life was probably a lot easier in Babylon than it would have been to go back to a destroyed Jerusalem and rebuild a city. So we don't know, obviously, their full motivations, but clearly they remain present in Babylon as Daniel leads this school of wise men. And so this eastern school of wise men remain in the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jewish peoples throughout, the, throughout that land, 
for that period of time on. It's reasonable to conclude, therefore, that the Magi who come looking for the Christ child are probably from this Eastern school that had been founded by Daniel 500 years before. And it's likely that many of the Magi are, are Jewish, although we have no record of any of their heritage as the stories emerge in the New Testament. The, the legend, of course, is that there are three kings, Balthazar, Melchior, and Caspar, who come from various group, racial and, and ethnic groups. None of this is known. It's all grown up as part of the legend of the wise men. But members of this sect who are followers of the true God of Israel and the Jews are part of Daniel's group, which is called the Eastern School. And they seem to be people who are following the living and true God. They are familiar with and possess in-depth knowledge of the writings of Daniel. They've studied them. They've studied the Hebrew Torah. They've studied the scriptures. And they are familiar with all of those things. But how would they possibly know about Christ's birth when they live over 500 miles away as the crow flies and 700 miles away if you go by, by road? How could they possibly have anticipated that Christ would be born in Bethlehem? Now the gospel narrative that we read this morning observes that there's some sort of celestial phenomena that predicts the birth of a king at the time. How the Magi linked this star to Judea is unclear. But they clearly have access to the Hebrew Bible and the prophecies that it contains. And so there's thinking among the, and there are large and thriving communities of Jews throughout Persia and Mesopotamia at the time. And so after seeing the star, my understanding would be that they've searched the scriptures, not just of the Hebrew Bible, but of all the other wise scriptures that they have at their fingertips. And they conclude that the logical explanation seems to be that this Messiah will be born in Jerusalem or in Judea or in that various, in that area. So they travel to Jerusalem and they travel town trading routes through the Syrian deserts, through Aleppo and Palmyra, all the way south down to Judea. And they seek an audience with King Herod in which they ask, where is the one who has been born the King of the Jews? So we saw his star in the east when it rose and we've come to worship him. By the time the Magi arrive, Herod is probably around 70 years old. He is in poor health. And we know from all historical accounts that Herod is a paranoid, crazy person by this time in his life. In his later years, convinced that everybody is plotting against him, he has many members of his family executed. He has several of his sons killed. He has two of his wives murdered. And the effect of the aging on the paranoid, on the paranoid Herod when the Magi arrived looking for a king can only be imagined. He clearly was not pleased by what they had to say. And so he asks the Jewish religious leaders to search the books of the prophets to find out where this Messiah was to be born. And they, of course, find a passage in Micah chapter 5 that references Bethlehem in a small province of, in this little town where this child would be born. For you, out of you will come forth the one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose rule is from ancient days. Herod then requests a second interview with the Magi after they find the child, and so they depart following the star. He, they have told him that the star appears at some point in the near past, and when they find him, they're supposed to report back, but of course they don't. Without exception, all scholars agree the reason they don't go back is because they know that Herod's intentions are not good for this child that they would find. The Magi proceed to Bethlehem, which to me is the most problematic part of the entire story. 
because I'm not sure how a star or any other celestial body marks a particular place where this child is. Nonetheless, this is what scripture tells us. And if the Magi were prepared to follow what they had understood from 500 years of teaching, I'm prepared to accept that at face value and trust that somehow God revealed to them precisely where that spot was. Notice that they're no longer in the stable. They now occupy a house in town. And as they arrive in the house, they bring him the gifts that they have brought. They, do, they bring the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. All of these gifts are extremely expensive. In fact, gold is probably the least valuable of all the gifts. Because frankincense and myrrh don't come from any of the regions around there. They come from only the far eastern, from Arabia. And so in all likelihood, the gold is the least valuable, although for the, for the, for the family, it's probably the most practical as they're forced to flee to Egypt and probably had to use some of that gold to survive in exile. The Magi then are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And this dream interpretation, of course, is their, that's their bread and butter, right? This is how they make their living. And so they trust their own mental misgivings and the dreams that they're having. And they exercise restraint and they go back to where they came from by another way. Herod then, in his fury and his anger, sets about to kill all the children of Bethlehem that are two years of age and younger. This is called the slaughter of the innocents. It's depicted in famous paintings. It's a well-known historical event, but there are those who question the historicity of it because there's no mention of it among any of the scholars at the time. My own understanding, only worth what my understanding is, is that Bethlehem is a small village. And so in all likelihood, there's somewhere between six and 14 babies under the, age of four, uh, the, under the age of two that are executed. And for Herod, this is a trifle. The amount of atrocities that this man's committed that are, that are legendary in the, in the ancient Near East, are, this would be nothing compared to those. And so I suspect that those who were around me were like, yeah, that's just Herod being Herod. And so they made no record of it because it wasn't that big a deal to them because they didn't understand what was really happening. Afraid of the population, uh, that they were going to be unhappy with him at this point in his life, and suspicious of his son Antipater, he executes Antipater, he executes these children in Bethlehem, and he then issues a decree that if he should die within the next 48 months or so, one member from every family in, in Jerusalem is to be executed, so that at least somebody will mourn his loss. He is not well loved. He is certainly hated by his people. He's feared by his people. And Macrobius writing in the fifth century said that the Emperor Augustus said of Herod, it was better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. This man is a whack job, is what he is. But how did the Messiah, how did the Magi know that the Messiah will be born? How did they know to look for a star? The answer to this question, we need, of course, to realize the sources of the information that they have available to them. And the most important source that they have available are the writings of the prophet Daniel. Many point to Balaam's uh, story in Numbers chapter 24. You may recall that Balaam is a pagan prophet who makes this prophecy. Uh, there's seven oracles that he gives, and in the fourth one he says this, there will be a star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. 
Many people point to that as being the likely source of the revelation that the Magi had that the Messiah would come from Judea. And no doubt they would be amazed, they would be informed of this, and they would, they would probably take this into account. But I think that this is less uh, the case, because even if they did, how do you pick that star out from all the heavenly wonders that, take, that have transpired over a period of 500 years from the time, or more, it's a thousand years since that prophecy has been written. How do, you, how do you pick a star out of that and then act on that traveling all that distance? No, I think the answer lies a lot closer to home and a lot closer to their tradition and a lot closer to their expectation. I think that they know from the prophet Jeremiah that the exile is going to last 70 years. Daniel knew that. Daniel's a contemporary of Jeremiah, and he knew of Jeremiah's writings. And he also knows that when Cyrus ascends to the throne and allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, he realizes that his vision is about to be fulfilled. And I think this is the reason that the Magi now begin to do the math and begin to put it together. But the Bible, in this case, gives us the math in Daniel chapter 9. Early in Daniel, in the, in the ninth chapter, we've come down to the point where, where Daniel is now in the ascendant position among all the people. And he realizes that this command has been given, they go back to Jerusalem. And in his fervor and in his desire to honor God, if you look at chapter 9 this afternoon, you'll see that he's, he is deeply in prayer. And he's having a significant time encountering God. And as he prays, he prays for the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to pick up chapter 9 and verse 20. I hope that we have that, the broadcast up there. Jackie, we do? Okay, so let's throw that up there. So I'm going to read this now, and I want you to see how this will... I think this is the source of the Magi's understanding 500 years later, almost 500 years later. Here's what God's Word says. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel... And presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression. To put an end to sin. And to atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations will be, are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, 
until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. These verses, in my opinion, give us the first clue as to the incredible understanding that these magi have concerning the timing of the appearance of the Messiah and the purpose for which he is to come. These men are really light years ahead of the best theologians in Jerusalem at the time. They seem totally ignorant concerning the signs of the times, something that Jesus will eventually reprimand of them in the latter days of his ministry. These Jerusalem theologians are equally confused concerning the nature of Jesus' ministry, something that the Magi seem to understand as well. Starting in verse 20 that we just read, God sends Gabriel to reveal to Daniel the calendar of heptads, or sevens, or weeks, and gives him an understanding for their organization and how they will unfold in the future beyond him. There are six important things that God is about to do that will be fulfilled within this time frame of 434 years. The kickoff for this is the first 49 years, which is the restoration of Jerusalem, which happens between 434 and 395. Okay? But there are six important things that will happen in that 432 year period, which is the fall of the restoration of Jerusalem. They are, according to the text, to finish transgressions. See in your mind if this sounds like what Jesus does. To finish transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. To fulfill the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy one, the Messiah. Daniel was further informed that there would be definite divisions to these 70 weeks, these 490 years. And it would all begin by the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which takes place over a 49-year period of time. From the issuing of this decree, there would be seven cities, seven sevens until the city is complete. And Daniel is told that after that, there will be 434 years until the Messiah will suffer for the people. Now from history, we know that the Magi knew that the clock of the 70 weeks that was given to Daniel began around the year 444 when Cyrus allowed the people to return to Jerusalem. That's documented not just in the Bible, that's documented by outside sources beyond the scriptures. So we know the rough date of that event. And we know beyond that that it did, in fact, take them 49 years to fulfill the rebuilding of the wall. Although the actual construction of the wall didn't take that long, but the resistance they got from the surrounding people did. Read Nehemiah this afternoon in order to get the full vision of that picture. But the point is, it takes this extended window for Jerusalem to actually be restored. And so it was clear to them that each day of the week represented a year in prophetic time. And so they realized that there was a period of time that was going to take place. In fact, 434 years would have to take place until the Messiah, the promised one of God, was to come, who would die for the sins of the people. Realizing that there was now, they were in that window of time when this all had to be fulfilled, if the scripture was to believe, they began, look, my opinion, they began looking in earnest around the year 4 or so B.C looking for some sign that they could combine with the teaching in Numbers with the teaching of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And this is why they were looking for a sign. And this is why the star that appears becomes so important to them. Because they knew, because they had studied the Old Testament prophecies, 
that all of this must be completed around the time that they were living. And nobody in Jerusalem seemed to understand this because they had lost sight of what the true meaning of the stars was and the true meaning of the teaching that had been given to them before. Given all the evidence in this account, it seems most likely to me that the wise men that we read about here in Matthew chapter 2 are in fact people that have studied the prophetic skies and the original message that God has given in the stars. They're not pagan astrologers. They're not some occult leaders who just somehow figure it all out. I'm persuaded that these are men who understood what the Old Testament taught because they had studied the teachings and reflected on the teachings of Daniel and those who had gone before. They were men who were followers of the Most High God. They were followers of the only living and true God. They were followers of Daniel, the servant of the Most High God. And what they learned from the sky was not only interpretable in an accurate way by their knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, it was confirmed by what they knew in the book of Daniel. So why do I tell you all this story that I think, I mean, I thought it was interesting. I hope you found it interesting and stuff that maybe you didn't understand about the Magi before. But why would I tell you this story on a Sunday morning worship service? What does this have to do with us as we sit here today in 2023? Surprisingly, it's really less about the arrival of the Magi and how they knew what to be looking for than it is... For me, it is about the fact that God had foreordained a series of events that had to happen in order for the events of Jesus' birth to unfold as it does. So with that in mind, I want you to put in your mind's eye now. I want you to use your sanctified imagination for a minute. I want you to imagine what it must have been like to be a Jew being taken into captivity in 587 BC. God's chosen people are on the brink of total destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. That's a fact. Your nation as you know it is about to be no more. Your culture is about to be destroyed. Everything that you have held to be true is about to go away. Their nation as they knew it is about to be no more. And there's no prospect of a way out. God is not going to ride in and save them at the last minute. Place yourself in that setting. And this is probably what you're thinking. Surely this is not the plan of God. I mean, we may have strayed. We may not be the best. But for real, the Babylonians? No. This can't be right. This cannot possibly be the plan of God. Surely there has to be some mistake. But here's the thing. It's not a mistake. It's not a mistake. They're facing their own demise. And as a result of that calamity, the Jewish exiles look around for insight on how they are to survive the coming nightmare that's before them. I imagine that many of those who had strayed from the true faith or who were just going through the motions and rituals lived in a state of utter despair in 587 BC. They had lost all hope. And the faith that they thought they had didn't measure up in this time of national crisis. 
But those who were striving to remain true to God used the coming reality to embrace the counsel that Jeremiah was giving to the people who had settled into Babylonian society. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah chapter 29. The last part of this will be very familiar to you, but the first part we usually gloss over. Have we got that one? Excellent. Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good, plans for welfare, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. <coughs> God used this tragedy to plant his children in the middle of a violent, pagan, culture precisely to provide awareness about something so magnificent, so beyond their comprehension, that it made no sense to them at the time. By raising up Daniel and other Jewish wise men, God was revealing and setting in motion the divine timeline that would lead to the birth of the promised messiahs. Israel's captivity was to be part of God's plan. So that as Galatians tells us in chapter 4, in the fullness of time, God can send his son to save humankind from their sin. Only then, nearly 500 years later, would the full impact and purpose of their captivity begin to make sense. At the time of their captivity, the people of that day were convinced that God had abandoned them. That they were without hope. A future. And yet, into that very moment of crisis, the seeds were being planted that would lead to the fulfillment of prophecies found throughout the Old Testament that a Savior would come who would save the world from sin and death. That Savior was called Emmanuel, God with us. That Savior would die for the salvation of all humankind 
and perhaps the best news of all, that Savior will come once again to take all who know him to dwell in his presence for all eternity. Is that still too abstract? Let me make it really concrete. Today is the first day of 2023. A clean slate. But we know it isn't, right? We know that all the baggage from 2022 is still there. We know all the, all the problems, all the struggles, all the challenges, all the societal ills that we see as a, that are all around us. That hasn't gone away just because we flipped the calendar to a new year. It's still there. It's still real. And you may be feeling like you're overwhelmed. All of us here in this room have known times of desperation. We've all known that. Moments when we thought to ourselves, what is happening to me right now clearly cannot be part of the plan of God. Just like 587 BC. This can't be God's plan. He must have it wrong. I must be missing something. Surely there's more here. Perhaps you may be facing a health scare, or emergency that threatens your life or that of a loved one. That's not a mistake. Perhaps you're going to walk through a valley of the shadow of death with a loved one who you see dying before your eyes in 2023. It's not a mistake. God's there. God's plan is just that way for you right now. And you're not alone. Perhaps your family has been fractured by disobedience or horrific decision making or name it. But your family is in crisis right now. That's not a mistake. It may be the result of your sin, but it's not a mistake. And God's got it in his hand. But just like the exiles of 587, you need to trust God. You need to trust God in the middle of that crisis. There's no promise of an easy road. There's a promise of a faithful God who's going to stand next to you. In the middle of the circumstances that you face. Whatever circumstances you face. In the stress of the moment that you're facing. You may be thinking. You may have even started to believe. That God somehow has it all wrong. And that maybe this life of faith isn't real after all. That could be how you feel this morning. And if it is. I don't want you to feel guilty about your feelings. That's how you feel. And your feelings are sort of real. But they're not real real. And the reason that your feelings are not real, real, is because of what we've been talking about this morning. There are no mistakes. There are no mistakes. You're not alone. And there's still hope for the future. In the darkest moments of Israel's history, when they're about to go into captivity, Jeremiah says to them, there's a hope for your future. It's there before you. Yeah, there's a period of darkness. It's 70 years of darkness. But there's hope for a future that I will give for you. 
The hardships that you have to endure and are facing right now are universal. And people of all times have walked where you're walking this morning. But you belong to Christ. And you are not alone. The suffering of this moment has a purpose. It may not be a purpose that you can see right now in the middle of your pain. But the purpose is there. And one day, you will see that it is good. Because God is good. And God made you for himself. He loves you. And everything that he has for you will work together for good if you know him. So take heart. Because if you're sitting here this morning and it's not good just now, God's not done with the situation yet. It's not over yet. Because when it's over, you'll see that it's good. God orchestrated the destruction of a nation. He established a group of followers living in the middle of a pagan culture. He sustained the belief in the living and true God for nearly 500 years and then sent those who knew the truth of that which was to happen to Jerusalem on two, within two years after the birth of Jesus to announce the birth of the king to a despot who wanted nothing more than to kill the one who had been born. And he couldn't do it. Because the plan of God was going to come to pass. And so Herod's decision to destroy children, horrific as it was, could not stay the plan of God. Because God's plan is for the good of his people. A God that big has all things under his control. So I ask you, is there anything beyond the plan of God? Let's pray. God, we sit here at the beginning of another new year. A year where we get to serve you. A year where we get to call out to you in pain. A year that's going to have moments of confusion. Let's be honest. It's a year that we sit here and there's a lot before us that we're confused by and unclear on. But that doesn't diminish the fact that you are God. And that you will work all things together for the good of those who know and love you. Impress that so deeply on our hearts this morning, Lord, that we enter 2023 with a sense of optimism despite all the obstacles that are in our path. Help us to look to you, to cast every care on you, and to trust in you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.